It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Hi, welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. Uh, this is a podcast where we are reading through Moby Dick a couple chapters at a time. I'm Tilly. And I'm Ben. And uh, today we are talking about chapters 33 through 35. Um, And these are like, I kind of think of these as like, if this, okay, this is a silly comparison that really shows like what kind of media I'm into other than this. But if this was an anime, these would be like episodes, you know, I mean, like, 34, 35, and 30, they would, they would be in the 30s, and they would just be, like, episodic episodes, where, like, some, they would be, like, bottle episodes, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, you, you mean that they would be what are often called filler episodes, even if they're not actually filler. Yeah, like, and, and... They're not progressing the main plot. And, like, that's a weird thing to say, because there isn't actually any, like, plot plot in these chapters, in the sense that, like, there are no events that you could fit into a linear time narrative, right? These are not Um, narrative chapters. You're totally right about that. But they're, like, a little more narrative than uh, last episode, Cetology, which was anti-narrative on a very deep level. I mean, what they are is, like, I guess exposition? (laughs) Like, world building? Um, and so that's what I mean is that, <laughs> yes, like... painting the fantastical world of the trade of turning whales into useful objects. I, I mean, yes. Like, no, yeah, yeah. That, that's this book. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I sounded sarcastic on purpose, but it was actually true. Yeah, and so, like, it's like if this were something which held itself to the requirement of always being a narrative, these would be, like, episodes where the plot doesn't matter that much, and you would just kind of get a little more detail on, like, what exactly is a harpooner? What role do they play? It would be, like, the, the, the Queequeg episode or whatever. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to take a very strong position here. This would be a garbage anime. Like, oh, you sure. could adapt this to an anime, and if you had a sufficiently, like, uh, obsessive artist who loved the details of whaling ships, it would be fascinating. But if you didn't have that, like, visual draw i think this would just not like this book would not be able to function purely on plot and character in a um in an like audiovisual medium yeah no no i mean what you kind of just said is like uh well it would be good if it was done well well no what I, I mean yes what i mean is that it would acquire a following if the like sheer brain-steaming obsession that Melville is bringing to the act of whaling was being constantly, like, directed out of the page or of the, you know, I guess, comic or out of the screen into the viewer, because people respond to that. 
Yeah, yeah, but yes, in terms of like actual narrative, it it, it doesn't remotely resemble any kind of TV show. Yeah, and um, to be clear, I guess what I'm saying is, Melville's approach to this book was absolutely not trying to craft something that would be like particularly accessible or fit within even the medium of the novel. At yeah. at the time, it's it's very experimental in a number of ways. So on some level, I think that any medium that he got really into. Uh, and that he had the skill to produce could have been sort of a vessel for these particular obsessions and interests, and all of them would have been weird and experimental, but I'm really glad we got the novel version, because I like books a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, there is the, like, particular nature of the novel where, like, it's something that, like, one person makes, um, Mm. which is not true of any kind of TV most of the time. Um, so, like, that's another way in which this comparison is silly, because if it were somehow made into a TV show, I mean, you know, there are Moby Dick adaptations. I assume the Moby Dick adaptation, like, like, films of Moby Dick Mm -hmm. are probably a lot less structurally experimental on the whole than the novel. Um, That would be my assumption. I'm sure there are some experimentally, like, I'm sure there are some, some film adaptations that are genuinely weird. Oh, I... Right? There's no way there aren't. I'm um, pretty sure there's, like, a progressive metal adaptation of it that's just an album that's, like, really long and noodly with guitars. And that see, that feels correct to me, but also I don't... Even as someone who might potentially like that, I don't particularly want to seek it out. <laughs> but now I'm gonna have to, damn it. I said it on Yeah, air. we have to... Well, not only do you have to seek it out, I have to seek it out because that's prime bonus uh, <laughs> bonus material. Fair enough. All right. Uh, let's uh, let's get down to business. Okay. Um, I do have one cursed comparison point, which is, so what you're saying is it needs to be a, uh, is that it might be a, like, one person, one, like, artist who's behind all of it and whose driving vision is involved. May I suggest... Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, but Moby Dick. Oh my god. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a terrible image, but um do, do we do we have enough fans to ask people to send us Jojo's uh Moby Dick fan art or is that just doomed? I mean, like, the thing is, Jojo's is not the only manga made by one obsessed. No, guy. it's not, but it's it's one where the specific and particular obsession seems to really come through, which is why I thought of it. And also it has a weird ability to colonize your brains. I, To be clear, I am a filthy part skipper and have just watched part four of JoJo's. I haven't seen it otherwise. But even part four colonized a little bit of my brain. And uh, I think that's why everything is like JoJo's to someone who's read a bunch of JoJo's. <laughs> so what you're saying is that JoJo's is a mind virus. Yes. Zero percent questioning that. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is a rocky stand, and it has infected us all. All right. Uh, So so chapter 33 uh, is titled The Speck Cinder, um, which is that that word is Ishmael's, or I guess Melville's, whatever, uh, anglicization of a Dutch word, um, which... uh, it looks like the Dutch word might be pronounced Speck Snyder. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I just... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty sure The fact he... that he lost the N and just sort of... That's well, amazing to me. Is, he didn't lose the N, he swapped no, the No, no, I, 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 I mean he lost y. the spot of the N. Like, it, it moved. It drifted. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, so the word 
uh, Specksinder or Specksnider means the chief harpooner uh, of a whaling vessel. Um, and uh, well, on literally, it means fat cutter. Yes. Um, and uh, on on the Pequod, uh, that's Queequeg um, because he's the he's like the harpooner on the first boat under the first mate Starbuck. Um, and uh, the chapter is basically supposed to be about like discussing the the unique situation on a whaling ship um, that's created by having harpooners among the officers, which you obviously don't have on any other ship because no other ship needs to harpoon whales. Um, and uh, he explains that more than two hundred years before he's writing, um, the the spec cinder. Um, held uh, like a position of authority that was in some ways kind of equal with the captain. Um, that they, that person had command over everything relating to actually hunting whales. Uh, and the captain just had like command over, you know, like the navigation and the general... The sailing part. And, the, yeah, the, exactly. The making the boat work. This is actually just, as a quick comparison, um, one thing that was said about uh, pirate ships during the Golden Age of Sail is that they were often sort of uh, triumvirate run, as, as well as often being kind of a crude democracy in various ways. Um, but they would often have a, um, uh, a captain, a navigator, and a quartermaster, if I remember the roles correctly. But basically, you'd have someone who saw to the ship, someone who saw to in-combat decisions and the actual raiding, and someone who saw to logistics and provisions. And all of these were, in different situations, pretty much absolute. Uh, and to some extent, the sort of standard... Uh, one might say, uh, the master and commander model of the ship, where the captain is the absolute ruler and everyone else descends from them, is very much uh, a result of naval officers, a result of the structure of a, um, of a military vessel, but also is the structure that we have here, where the captain is the owner of the ship. So, you know, capital and the military have some very similar functions in naval organization. And I'm sure I'm overlooking various nuances, and please at me about it, because I would love to learn more or be told I'm wrong on this one. But I think <laughs> it's particularly interesting, and the reason I'm bringing up this sort of general history is that this chapter and the next are both about the internal hierarchies of the Pequod and sailing ships in general, and Ishmael's thoughts about, like, the position of the ruler, or the person set above others, which is obviously very important given that Ahab is almost literally, like, just superhuman in some ways. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and it does seem like, um, there, there's a, there's like a very slight implication here that, that I like, um, that like, perhaps, uh, Ahab kind of wishes Queequeg were in charge of more stuff. Um, because he clearly views like the 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 change from having the spec cinder be in charge. Um, Wait, Ahab or Ishmael? Oh, I sorry, I meant to say Ishmael. Yeah, I was about um, to say yeah, I don't no. remember that. Ahab one definitely doesn't want Queequeg <laughs> in charge. Of, Ahab does not want anyone except Ahab to be in charge of anything on the Pequod. I don't think um, that. You know what? That is going to be a very interesting question to continue to hold in our minds. Okay, fair point. But fair like, point. I do think you're correct, but I think that in these chapters, there's sort of a discussion of that. Yes, um, but but the the thing that I was talking about is just that um, you know 
as Ishmael is talking about this like historical position of Spec Cinder and uh, the fact that like now um, this doesn't really exist. Uh, there's only like there's a similar term that's used by uh, British uh, whaling vessels, but it just refers to like the head harpooner. Doesn't they don't have those like captain like authorities? And he clearly he he describes this as uh, his former dignity is sadly abridged. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, clearly uh, Ishmael is is uh, waving the flag for harpooner's rights here. Um, Absolutely. Um, anyway, but even on uh, an American vessel like the Pequod that doesn't even still use that title, uh, the Harpooners are officers, um, which uh, is kind of a, like, he, he kind of goes into explaining what exactly is the difference between an officer and a, you know, A man before sailor. the mast? Exactly. And, and it's, the, the distinction is whether you're before or aft of the mast, um, which refers specifically to where you sleep on the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, you know, uh, being before the mast means that your quarters are literally located in front of the mast. And Well, in uh, this case, it's, it's going to be a multi-masted ship, so we should specify well, that this yes. is generally the main mast in the center of the ship. Yes. Uh, and and the, the captain's quarters and where the, you know, the officers live are aft in the back. Um, and, uh, this is, this is true on the Pequod. Um, and, uh, and so this does mean that, that even though, um, harpooners are not like as, as, as important, uh, on the Pequod as they would have been 200 years ago in a Dutch whaling vessel, um, they do have like, they do have, have command. And there are even some circumstances where they have, um, uh, what's what's the actual phrase? I think it's like command of the deck. Um, uh, which they certainly have their quarter deck, as it's put often in this. Yeah. Um. It, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for the. Um, okay. Yeah. Um. It's under certain circumstances, night watches on a whaling ground. The command of the ship's deck is also his, and I think what that means is basically that, like, the under those circumstances, the the harpooner would be, like, the most important person on duty, basically? Yes, and they, and specifically, I think, in this context, what Ishmael means is that they can order maneuvers that normally you'd have to go uh, get the captain or someone else, which, on a ship at sea, it's vitally important that you have someone who can make that call, either, you know, literally anyone can make that call in the sense of, oh god, we're about to crash, or in a more, you know, in a rigidly hierarchical situation, you always need an officer who can, uh, or equivalent of an officer who can make that call so that you don't have, um, at least so the theory goes, you don't have people running at cross purposes or doing things that are going to work against each other in a situation of emergency while the captain is still rolling out of bed going, why is the ship sideways? (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, even as someone who doesn't have any, like, inherent love for fucking naval hierarchy. Like, yeah, I'm trying to make there it are clear obvious that, reasons, like... Yeah, I'm there are obvious to... reasons to have someone who is in the position to to tell everyone how the boat is supposed to move. You know what I mean? Like, it makes sense that... It, it, like, I've been sailing, and <laughs> uh, you, you've, <sighs> you've got to have someone that you listen to in that regard, because it's you can't take a vote. 
Yes. In that context. Yeah. In, in emergency contexts, as, as much as the sort of classic naval hierarchy is not... Basically, I've been trying to make it clear that this sort of rigid naval hierarchy is not the only way people function on boats. It's a very yes. specific modus that sort of became the basis for entire genres of fiction, for example. Um, but uh, it's definitely the case that it is useful to have an experienced person that everyone can look at in a crisis, and that's generally true, and that's very much what this sort of um, hierarchy is meant to uh, enable. And in this particular case, it, because getting whales is, like, the clear goal, the harpooner has command at the deck, because if they see a whale at night, they want to be able to make the best actions towards acquiring that whale and killing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh... You know, Whale Murder Specialist would be, like, a great title, uh, in place of Harpeneer. I'm just putting that out there. Whale Slayer. Um, and, uh, Ishmael does say that, like, a, um, uh, a ship like the Pequod, uh, which is sailing, um, you know, the, the southern seas, the South Pacific, hunting whales, um... Because that's, uh, because of, you know, various specificities to that particular kind of voyage, that does tend to have, like, somewhat more relaxed discipline than other ships might. I think um, that's also because of the particular qualities of Ahab. That's, that's true, although he, he says, um, what I Ishmael claims that this has to do with, um, he, he's talking about a southern whaling voyage. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see what um, you mean. And, like, he's talking about, like, the idea that it's the longest journey that anybody makes on mm. a ship. Right? And also... And, and that, oh, sorry, go on. Well, uh, the thing you were just saying about how, like, everyone's goal here is to get whales because everyone makes money depending on, you know, a percentage of the total whale that they take. So, like, everyone's interest in a certain sense is very um, united. Uh, yeah. on a whale ship in a way that it wouldn't be on a typical merchant vessel where, like, everyone's just getting paid a wage to do their work. Um, so in a certain sense, like, there is a weird kind of equality among, you know, the, the, the crew. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I would draw us back to when he was discussing, uh, you know, how um, it was sort of an odd aside in that discussion of how sort of everyone is bound together on this floating island, all these isolatos coming together. Uh, with a single goal in mind, and how he talks about how Ahab's will was what sort of set that in motion, though they didn't know it yet. Um, I think there is this sense of, of unity that he really wants to get across, that everyone is united in their goal of acquiring whales and making money from that, and as we discover that's not necessarily Ahab's priority, that's going mm -hmm. to be an interesting source of tension, and um, seeing basically how the um, how does the crew react to the fact that Ahab doesn't actually care about killing your average whale that much, but really cares about a particular whale? Yes. Um, and, uh, but even with all that, like, given all those reasons why things would be a little more relaxed and democratic on a, on a whaling vessel, um, it's not like uh, the... the 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 what what he refers to in a couple different ways um the punctilious externals um of the quarter deck 
that like those still exist. Yeah, on, the the signs and symbols of authority and like respect shown. Yeah, and and one thing that I think is kind of interesting is like this chapter and the next are like focus a lot on that th- those you know um, like signs of respect as distinct from I think actual. Um, like actual ability to tell people what to do. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think that the the specific line here that I think is really important is, um, and though of all men the moody captain of the Pequod was the least given to that sort of shallowest assumption, which here means sort of presenting yourself as um, important and uh, and like imperious. And though the only homage, sorry, the only homage he ever exacted was implicit, instantaneous obedience. Um, Right, like, like, yeah, Ahab has, there's this idea that Ahab is democratic in the sense that he doesn't want people to treat him like a king, he doesn't want, like, these signs of, of respect, he doesn't order people around except when it's specifically for purposes, but when he orders you around for a purpose, you do it. And it's absolute, and it's instantaneous, and if you, you know, what was it, Flask, who talked back to him and got emotionally, if not physically, kicked? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is kind of interesting, like, I think it betrays, or not betrays, that's a weird way of putting it, but, but I think this, this chapter, um, it's a weird thing to read when you actually don't know what those, uh, like, formal signs of respect are, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like... Ishmael is kind of trying to argue that Ahab is, you know, relatively lenient. He just expects you to do everything he says the instant you say it. And, like, as a, you know, current day person who doesn't really know what the kind of, um, like, formal, like, signs of respect for a sea captain are, I hear that and I'm like, what are you, are you really trying to tell me that this guy is, like, not a, a, an, a like, authoritarian boss? Like, so, he is. So I think um, that it's, it's, um, it's complicated, because what he's arguing here, and I'm going to get really dorky about this, he's arguing that Ahab is almost the, like, um, the ideal enlightenment monarch. And the, the argument mm. here is that Kant, specifically, uh, who, by the way, real fucker in some ways, um, Kant argued that the ideal monarch for an Enlightenment thinker is a total tyrant, someone who is so secure in their power, so absolute in it, that they allow free speech and free discussion and so on because they know it can never threaten their political authority. Um, yeah. And this is very much sort of the model that Ishmael is proposing for Ahab. And I don't think Melville is proposing this. I think this is specifically Ishmael is proposing that Ahab is um, in many ways a good captain because he has this power to be instantly obeyed and he will make you obey him by the force of his personality and the force of his authority, but he does not actually care what you do or how you do it, other than that these dictates which run the ship and direct it towards its prey are obeyed. So what you have is this situation where all sorts of interesting internal life and cultural events and, like, personalities can grow and interact within the ship, but all of them are ultimately united by Ahab's driving will when it's important to whaling, basically. Yeah. And um, but it is, I, I don't think that's meant to be a not complex proposition. Yes. A simple. The word is simple. <laughs> good job. Um, especially because um, he does, like, make it clear that, okay, Ahab doesn't care about... Like, this is... I don't have a single concrete example of what these forms and usages of the sea are 
Like, I don't know what well, there, a normal sea captain here. would expect people There's one here. To do. He required no man to remove the shoes from his feet. You're stepping upon the quarterdeck, which I think is a, like an exaggerated example. But that kind of like showing deference, you know, approaching. And what's kind of funny is that as far as I can tell, most of the mates still approach Ahab with terrified deference. Ahab never right. requires it and would probably not notice it, which we discuss well, in the next chapter. Well, so so he, the thing is... Um, Right, so, so he, he goes through saying Ahab doesn't care about this, you know, formality shit, but he doesn't ignore it. He, he, he doesn't, Ahab is not totally throwing out the window all the, like, social norms of how you are supposed to behave towards your captain. Um, it's just that Ishmael kind of argues he's using those things for some purpose mm. other than what they're actually intended for, right? Um, yeah, I suppose... And... Hmm, yeah, I I think I slightly disagree, but uh, please continue. Well, the, this is what makes it a little bit hard for me to, like, understand exactly what Ishmael is saying here, because I don't know... I don't know what those forms and usages really are. And I also don't really know, and Ishmael isn't explaining, what purpose they serve normally. Like, on a merchant vessel... If someone did make you take off your shoes before going on the quarterdeck, like, what would he be trying to accomplish that way? Or what does Ishmael think he'd be accomplishing that way? There's not really a Mm. clear expression of that. So I have a take. I have a suggestion. Please. Which is that the point of those forms of authority is to establish that the, the captain is to be obeyed in these various respects, and also just to gratify their desire to be obeyed. This the mm-hmm. sense that you are... I mean, I think he later in the chapter describes it as that certain sultanism of his brain when talking about Ahab, which is such a good word. Um, well, I mean, it's... It's it, very... Uh, it is no. exoticizing, yes. It is yes. mildly orientalist, quite exoticizing, and like... The thing is, I'm not sure that it's actually, like, intended to be such. It's just, it's, he's trying to say despotism, but he's using sultanism, and that's kind of amazing. I mean, given the thing that he does in the next chapter with, like... I, I think that he is trying to depict... I think he is doing the thing that is very typical, I think, for, like... Um, 19th century he, he, authors? Yes, where, like, he sees, uh, you know... Um, foreign absolute monarchies as somehow more like dictatorial and oppressive mm, than yeah. the absolute monarchies that he's familiar yeah, with. Yeah, no, right? actually, you know what? I'm I think you're right. Yeah, I, I will take that back. You are you are correct that he is talking about this as like it is an unusual monarchy and therefore somehow more absolute than monarchies, you know, equally formalized and absolute within his sphere. Um Yeah. I especially, I think, like, okay, the use of the word sultanism here is, like, doing that to some extent, but but I think it's really in the next chapter with the way that he talks about, um, he refers to the mates as emirs, um, and, and yeah, uh, yeah, no, Ahab I... is the sultan, and he's doing that to emphasize, like, the extreme deference that they're showing him, I think. Yeah, um, no, I, I think you're right. I was, I was overlooking that. I think you're correct. Um, but... To, I think that the I do think that the the sort of the point is that these forms of authority are expressing a desire for power, a certain sort of petty drive, whereas Ahab is going to be presented as being above that. Ahab's yeah. desire for control is solely in pursuit of his goals, which are going to come up next episode, and I'm going to be so hype. I mean, oh my god. Oh uh, fuck. Um I 
Look, contain yourself. We have a lot of good shit on this episode, <gasps> I too. know! Ah, oh, but it's so good. Anyways, suffice I- it to say, Ahab's real cool, and he's very much the sort of uh, figure of someone who does not desire power over other people itself, but has an aim in mind, claims power over other people, and has the force of personality to make that happen. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, the way Ishmael depicts it, it's as though Ahab gets this kind of subservience purely from his force of personality. He he is their boss. Yes. Um, uh, other sea captains don't have Ahab's personality, and they get just as much deference. But Yes, but, and well, I think the argument here is that, to some extent... Another sea captain would need those forms of authority, those, quote, um, paramount forms and usages of the sea. Part of the point of them is to maintain this hierarchy that Ishmael thinks is, you know, kind of funny and a little suspect, and he'll he'll submit to it because he's stoic, but he's absolutely not going to credit it with being a real, like, a genuine, um, a genuine hierarchy in the sense of they, them literally being better than him. Whereas with Ahab, yes. Ahab demands none of that, but is better than Ishmael. Yeah, or like, yeah, that's how Ishmael's depicting it. Yes. In fact, uh, you were just talking about, you know, like the, the ideal uh, Enlightenment king. And I think it, there's like, it's just fascinating. Um, the stuff, the, the next bit in the summary um, is Ishmael kind of talking about like actual princes and kings and... Um, this was a section that was a little hard for me to follow because oh, I think he's... Oh, it's al- Baroque. Well, and also he's he's alluding to, like, existing sort of philosophical and even theological ideas that I'm not familiar with. Um, but but just to, to summarize what he literally says, um, he's comparing Ahab to uh, a, a category of person that he refers to as um, uh, intellectually superior, God's true princes of the empire... And the choice hidden handful of the divine inert, um, which this category of people, or this category of men, obviously, where clearly women are not included in this. Um, uh, he's talking about them as, like, people who are, you know, like, actually superior in, in like, even a divine way. Um, not they literally are gods, but, like, that they are, you know, like, blessed by God. Yeah, um, they are the... Uh... They are the elect in a certain sense. Like when we when when Ishmael says that certain sultanism of his brain, he doesn't mean that Ahab has a desire for power, desire for dictatorship, but that Ahab is genuinely like elevated in his brain and his intellectual capacities are such that he is rightfully in command of people. Hmm. I like I, I disagree because I think the word sultanism is used here to mean like uh, uh, like, not legitimate authority, but, like, um, kind of domineeringness. Hmm. Um, but but you're also right. I, I think that what he's saying is that Ahab has a, a certain amount of, like, emotional desire to be in charge of people. Um, h- however, he also has, like, actual intellectual superiority. Oh, oh, um, if, if I may attempt to square this circle. Um, I think that the, I think that the uh, specific thing here is that he talks about how intellectual superiority, regardless of its desire for power, does not guarantee power. He, he goes on to right. talk about so, that. And 
So as a matter of fact, I, I think he's actually saying something a little stronger than that. I think he's saying that the best people in the world, the, the, the elect, um, of whom it's pretty clear he thinks Ahab is one, um, not only that they aren't necessarily the leaders of the world, but almost that they, that they can't be. Um, hmm. because, uh, because like, I, I will disagree if I, they, I will disagree. Well, okay. L- let me, okay. Yeah, yeah. L- let me present what I'm saying first. Sorry. Please. Um, so what he says is for be a man's intellectual superiority, what it will, it can never assume the practical available supremacy over other men without the aid of some sort of external arts and entrenchments always in themselves, more or less paltry and base. So he's saying that you like, even if you're an inherently superior person, you can't take on a position of authority without kind of dirtying your hands with the real world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he's saying that, like, truly excellent people never become kings because they won't stoop to, like... Politics. To, yeah, to politics, basically. Yeah, I... Hmm. I think that to some extent, especially in the context of monarchy, where someone can basically without their own decision or action, attain the crown. There is a sense that this is to some extent random, that there's the possibility of a philosopher king, and if that does yes. not occur, it is because that is the actual will of providence, that there's like a there's an actual influence ensuring that particularly superior individuals do not arise in families with direct access to power and the crown. Yeah, because he does admit in this discussion that there is at least one case of someone who has, you know, like a, a inherently superior mind and also is a king. Um, he's, he refers to uh, Tsar Nicholas I, um, who, who I do think is like, I mean, it's, it's hard for me to say exactly how Ishmael or Melville relate to this, um, but, you know, uh, he like put down... Uh, uprisings of 1848 um i i think that and i think that also just like czars in general to some extent are much like sultans are kind of a um an othered symbol of like Mm. totally absolute authority yeah Um, so it is interesting that he's 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 bringing up a a philosopher king but it's one who you would have good reason to associate with, like, despotism. Yeah, he specifically says, the ringed crown of geographical empire encircles an imperial brain. And I don't know that that's a positive. Well, yeah, especially because the next bit, then the plebeian herds crouch abased before the tremendous centralization. Yeah, like, yeah. He's, he, 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 you know, you could say, like, certainly this is a, certainly this entire chapter believes in the idea of inherently superior people. Um, so on some level, the idea that ordinary people are afraid of inherently superior people, uh, that's not necessarily something Ishmael sees as a bad thing. Um, but he is expressing that fear. Um, yeah. And he has previously talked about his, um, about the democratic urge and how like the great democracy, which is God or things like that. So I do think that on some level that centralization is itself a bad thing in his opinion. And like, not necessarily because he thinks Tsar Nicholas was a bad person. In fact, he seems to think he was a superior person, even if he might have been highly morally questionable. But that that centralization, that combination of an imperial mind and an imperial crown, I do think um, Ishmael is saying that that's bad. That's a dangerous proposition, and it's better if that doesn't happen. 
And then goes on to say that um, Ahab, my captain, still moves before me in all his Nantucket grimness and shagginess. He's saying that, oh, well, Ahab was never an emperor or a king. But he has a king's yeah. name, and he had the command that was due to him, I think is kind of what we're supposed to get out of this. Yeah, like, it is, it, I think it's, it's um, like, one thing that uh, is easy to forget by the end of this uh, chapter, but, but, you know, this is why he brings it back in with that bit about grimness and shagginess, is that um, however absolute Ahab's authority on the Pequot is, and however much Ishmael admires him, like, to the world at large... Ahab is, like, a, a weirdo and, like, not very important he and is, not especially greatly respected. He is literally a uh, tradesman who works for a small firm in acquiring a valuable resource. Yes. Um, if it weren't for the fact that he had a share in the boat, he would be middle management. Yes, absolutely. Um, and and th there, there, are, there are at least some... Like, that was a thing, right? Where, like, the captain would be, like, effectively... Yeah, an employee. Like, not an owner. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this is, you know, the captain still has a certain uh, mystique or importance about him. It's, it's not as though the captain was a completely ignored position, still has in the present day. Um, but you also see this in the fact that Beldad, Bildad and whatever his other... Peleg. Peleg, thank you. Bildad and Peleg are also captains, despite the fact that neither of them appears to be shipping out with any sort of ship uh, at present, and uh, but they do appear to both be, like, retired actual captains who commanded ships. So to some extent, this is a merchant... This is a economic concern being run by people who did actually do this sort of thing in the past. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a... Uh... Uh, there, there's also, there's one sentence here, um, that, that I, there's a sentence here that is, that is kind of obscure to me, um, mm -hmm. which is, uh, so after he's, 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 he's just described Nicholas the Tsar, um, and then... Oh yeah, this the one's confusing sentence. to me too. Yeah. Nor will the tragic dramatist who would depict mortal indomitableness in its fullest sweep and direct swing ever forget a hint, incidentally so important in his art, as the one now alluded to, which... So he's he's saying, hey guys, there's a hint in what I just wrote, yeah. but I don't know what the hint is. Yeah, I mean, I, so I would like to tie it back to Gnosticism, but... Uh, please do. So you mentioned that in your, um, and this is actually something I did not know about, and I just want to make that clear, your uh, um, annotated version specified that the divine inert was a term from Gnosticism. Yes. And that specifically is uh, the phrase... Um, those men who become famous more through their infinite inferiority to the choice-hidden handful of the divine inert than through their undoubted superiority over the dead level of the mass is, um, is uh, God's true princes of the empire. Uh, or, sorry, the opposite. It's um, like the Napoleons, yeah, he's, he's the, the conquerors of the world, are um, defined more are... by their moral failings, their inability to be at the level of the divine inert, which if I'm... I was not able to find this by Googling because it only brings up Melville examples and people like making political arguments off of it, and it was extremely tiresome, so I got really bored of that Google quick. But um, if I am remembering my early Gnostics correct in the kind of terminology, the divine inert is probably a term for basically the elect, but which in Gnosticism means people who have the sort of spiritual... Um, 
nature that makes them capable of understanding and knowing and acquiring uh, great knowledge, um, and who therefore sort of keep it hidden and make sure that only those people who are similarly appropriate to, um, to that knowledge acquire it. Gnosticism has a very strong esoteric element uh, where there's a small set of people who are united by having special secrets nobody else has and uh, who are the only saved people, effectively. Mm -hmm. So I think that in this case, it's comparing, you know, your Napoleons, your Alexanders, your uh, great but deeply flawed individuals, your great men of history, and saying that what becomes remembered about them and what's important about them is their failings and the, the weaknesses in them, even though they attain to this great power. And I think possibly the hint for the dramatist is the idea that maybe something grim lurks in Ahab's future, that his great virtues, the fact that he is, you know, almost one of those uh, divine inert, might not be brought to their best conclusion by this combination with power. But that's yeah. really only a guess. That sentence is very obscure to me. Yeah. Incidentally, um, so so since you're... I, I assumed from the way that my annotation put it that divine inert was like a phrase used in Gnostic texts. But it might be, since, but I haven't run into it. Like, there's a lot well, of Gnostic think, texts. They didn't agree on much. Okay, that's fair. Um, it, it's possible that Melville got it from some specific text, but... Um, but but I think, I guess to me the fact that you weren't able to find anything that wasn't Moby Dick, uh, looking for this phrase suggests that Melville coined it here, um, which which I think does make me want to ask like, what does he mean by inert? Like what is so inert so my... about the elect? My thinking on this is that if it is a Gnostic term, and it's meant to be a Gnostic term, and maybe it's referencing a Gnostic term, but we don't know, and, you know, possibly I'll just be shown that if I went to Google page 2, aka the far side of the world, I would have found the truth. But, you know, who does that? Whoever goes to the second page of Google results? Um, I think it might be referring to... There are various theories of, like, substance and quality of the individual or of the spirit that show up in Gnosticism. And uh, Gnosticism is often associated with things like alchemy, various, you know, occult arts and demonology and all that stuff because the Gnostics believed in secret and hidden knowledge. So it made a lot of sense for them to be like, and this secret and hidden knowledge lets me turn lead into gold. Um, <laughs> and so this also means that a lot of occult metaphors and especially alchemical metaphors, because alchemists love metaphors, um, entered into Gnosticism at various times or was inflected by Gnosticism. So... I think possibly part of the idea of the divine inert is that they are non-reactive. They are um, inert in the chemical sense. They can't be influenced or changed by circumstance or by events because they are enlightened. That would be my guess. That, that makes sense. And cool. in which case, to some extent, the idea of the divine inert is that these are people who will be and are spiritually superior and, like, good, and circumstance cannot cause them to become less. Yeah. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, uh... I, th there's, there's certainly, like, we've been talking about Gnosticism as the philosophy here, but certainly there's a lot of Stoicism in that, too, yeah. right? Um, 
there's this idea of the person in opposition to the world or the like the spiritual existing am among the material but striving not to be influenced by it yeah yeah um and uh it it, it definitely you know um it is interesting to me that with this kind of um you know this sense of like the like internal spiritual superiority as opposed to like the world it's interesting to me that ishmael doesn't go to the degree of saying like actually ahab is better because he appears to be shabby you know mm, like i he still mm. takes the idea of um like the sort of grandness associated with like worldly power very seriously like he does respect that um yeah he's not doing ishmael is very influenceable by like loudness <laughs> he is it's true that ishmael is in some ways easily impressed yes I think the next chapter will also yeah, underline that wow. to some extent. Yes, I yes, I have to agree. Um, uh, but no, I, I think you're right. And there's also this um, this last sentence, which is like almost plaintive. Yeah. Do you want to read it, or can I? Oh, please go ahead. Oh, Ahab, what shall be grand in thee? It must needs be plucked at from the skies and dived for in the deep and featured in the unbodied air. And, like, he's expressing that what is majestic about Ahab, literally what is of the quality of majesty about Ahab, is um, not physically present and is not sort of recognized by the world, but instead is found in this sort of almost elemental uh, reality around him. Um, and in his, I think, in his, like, contestations with wow i i've been infected by ishmael in his his struggle against these elemental powers against yeah, yeah. the world at large purely in like a, a grand and physical sense even um which again gnosticism is showing up here yeah yeah and the, the phrase featured in the unbodied air like you know literally has to be worked in a completely translucent and featureless medium that uh i mean we've talked a little bit about um sort of the way this book sort of frames and figures things and the way ishmael thinks about being an author i mean it showed up in cytology with his uh, his quartos and folios and i think that's part of this here which is he's saying that like Ahab's grandness can't actually be depicted visually or in appurtenances or in, like, the way he's dressed or anything, because he's always going to be physically shaggy, and even as Ishmael tries to describe him as cool as possible, ultimately it's only in this sort of abstract sense, this, this spiritual or emotional sense that you can get across what Ahab is, really. Yeah, it's almost like he's a reverse... Uh, like emperor who has no clothes mm. like it, it's because Ahab has no like costly robe that or, or, or rather like Ahab is a true king and the like lack of costly robe <laughs> why did I use that phrase twice um, <laughs> it is uh, it, it is like deceptive about his true nature yes rather and than speaking of deceptive actually earlier in the chapter he specifically says um uh, he sometimes masked himself when talking about Ahab's use of forms and figures of authority. Yeah, yeah. There's almost a suggestion that, like, 
um, you know, making people like bow and scrape for him is is fake for Ahab, even though he kind of, in some sense, you get the sense that Ishmael feels that if anyone deserves that, it would be Ahab. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a complicated. I keep saying complicated this episode, but this is this is a baroque set of chapters. Um, I, I think it is this sort of complicated thing where, on the one hand, Ahab absolutely has this you know this certain sultanism of the brain, this superiority that he desires to make known and be respected for, but also the particulars of it are not such that they would actually demand respect. So instead, he's um, forced and capable of forced to and capable of. Um, seizing upon these forms and usages of the sea that provide him with that authority, which he is owed for other reasons. Yeah, yeah. Um. Right. Uh, wow, that is a three-page we... chapter, and we just we went yeah, long a lot on in there. it. Yeah, no, it's it's super but, dense. But yeah, let's uh, let's let's move along to chapter thirty-four, uh, which is titled "The Cabin Table." This one's a um, bit more humorous, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so this chapter is talking about um, this. This chapter, it's really this one and the next one that gave me that sense of like, oh, these are bottle episodes um, because this like depicts a scene, but it's also mm. a scene that happens every day on the Pequod. Like, it's not really a plot event. Yeah, you mentioned um, um, before we were recording the idea that these are sort of easing us back into narrative yeah yeah so it's like this isn't um this is not a an event in the plot in the sense that like you know like i said before if you were making a timeline of this story you couldn't really put the cabin table in a timeline because he's just talking about how everyone is regularly acting um not any specific incident necessarily Mm -hmm. but um but in the course of describe because they do the same thing every day um it, it, he can actually like go through a scene yeah and um, he has like specific uh lines of dialogue and so on but they're meant to be describing a typical example yeah um so this is what he the the thing he's describing is uh the way that um the the officers or i guess i don't actually know for certain whether the mates and the harpeneers are the only officers maybe there are other ones um, i but... think from how he talks about it they must be the only officers because he talks about the you know the mates and the captain having uh dinner then he talks about the harpeneers coming and having dinner i think after that he specifies that the uh the men before the mast come and have dinner after that i might be wrong Mm, I I think the uh, I think the men before the mast like don't eat dinner in this cabin. Mm, no, that's entirely possible. Yeah, I I got the sense that this was everyone but the men before the mast. Yeah. Um. Anyhow, uh, so this is this is he's talking about how these people eat dinner, um, which happens at noon. So to me, this is actually lunch. Uh, but you know, whatever. Um. Uh. So the the. Sorry. <laughs> What? No. I'm just saying. Yeah, no, I, I would also call this lunch, but the, the, the lunch-dinner-supper uh, discussion is one that my family has actually um, cared quite a bit about, because my dad's South African, and uh, apparently they would use uh, dinner and supper as, like, you know, being previously a British colony, they would use dinner and supper to distinguish those two, and so his use of dinner and supper is, was, for a very long time, a little bit flexible. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I just find it charming. 
yeah, no, fair enough. Um, okay, so so the the steward, um, who I assume this is not his name, but he goes by Doughboy. I could um, not stop imagining the Pillsbury Doughboy, and it's a stupid, stupid thing, but I just well, I mean, he he is described as being kind of like pale and fleshy, and even in fact, in the first sentence, he is described as having a Pale loaf of bread face. So what you're saying is so, he is the Pillsbury Doughboy, and he has a yes. And, wow, that makes that brand so much better. <laughs> anyway, um, so he announces dinner to Ahab, um, who kind of uh, you know doesn't really seem to pay attention initially, but then Ahab tells Starbuck that it's time for dinner. Uh, and Starbuck waits until Ahab is seated, and then he tells Stubb, uh, and then Stubb tells Flask, uh, and this is in you know kind of descending order. That's the mates from first to third. Um, uh, and uh, Flask, once he's heard that it's dinner time uh, and everyone else who's more important than him has gone below into the cabin, uh, he takes this chance to mock all of them uh, by taking off his shoes and dancing a hornpipe. Um, Directly over their heads, because he's dancing it on the deck above the uh, space of din- above the, like, the captain's cabin. Yes. Um, and uh, this, by the way, this is also the passage where he's calling the mates uh, emirs. Yes, and um, um, specifically, you were absolutely correct, he calls uh, Ahab the Grand Turk. Yeah, and, and I think, yeah, um, this is, we, we talked a while back, um, uh, like we recorded this a while ago, I just, it's on my mind because I edited the podcast not that long ago, mm-hmm. about... Um, like, what is Ishmael's understanding of Muslims? And, like, does he have a concept of people of the book? Or does he think that the world is divided entirely into Christians and pagans? Um, this really doesn't offer no, any it really help doesn't. in that regard. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, at that time, I was like, we'll see if, you know... If it comes up, uh, yes. It, yeah, if it comes up. And the answer is, it came up. Yeah. There's also some no, other no stuff help. that's going to be wild when it shows up. And that's the amount I will explain about that. So, um... Stay tuned. Right. So Flask does that little dance, um, which, it, it, it's interesting, uh, he takes off his shoes for it so that it won't make any noise, right? Um, but it's interesting that that is also specifically something that was mentioned in the previous chapter as, like, you know, something super deferential that, like, a really domineering sea captain might make people do. Yes. Because in this case... Flask is doing this, I mean, first of all, he's doing it in order to be able to mock someone, mm-hmm. um, and he's doing it at no one's command, but he is taking off his shoes on the deck because of Ahab. Yeah, I... Um, which is... I, I think that's going to be, especially with Flask, a consistent quality in this chapter is that Flask feels bound by these social obligations to show these va- this vast deference uh, when in Ahab's presence and to do all these forms and usages... Uh, that Ahab never demands, and as far as we know, would not notice if they were missing, but Flask is totally unable to avoid them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, it's, uh, the, um, once he, so he does this little dance, um, but then, uh, as he's, and and he kind of goes down into the cabin, like, still, I don't know. Mocking. Mocking them, yeah. Like, like he's still playing around as he yeah, goes down. Yeah, clowning. He's clowning. Um, yeah, but then when he actually gets to the door and, like, opens the door and enters Ahab's presence, he completely changes his expression and becomes totally subservient. 
It's described as he ships a new face altogether, which is just such a great use of metaphor. Yes. Um, And then uh, once they're actually at the dinner table, um, although Ahab doesn't in any way demand this um, beyond just like... uh, So Ahab is totally silent the whole time while he's like carving up the roast and like serving it to the three mates. Um, And they are also totally silent, um, which like, uh, you know, he's Ishmael emphasizes that, you know, Ahab really isn't Ahab never told them that they had to be totally silent at dinner. Um, But, you know, it is also it, it doesn't really the degree to which Ishmael thinks that that's yeah, I... Ishmael doesn't seem to be understanding the way in which, like, yeah, if I was being served, if someone was, like, clearly the head of the table at a dinner party, and they didn't speak a word the entire time, I probably wouldn't say anything either. Well, to be, to be clear, Ishmael's aware of that power. In fact, he literally talks about how, um, uh, he, like, he describes yes. that uh, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, does not have the, um, the authority that someone presiding as host over a dinner table has. I think that part of the point here is to compare the sort of the influence of just someone's personality and social authority, one's just like literally totally informal influence to the strict and actual authority of a sea captain and show how Ahab doesn't really... Those two don't differentiate for Ahab. He just has a sort of pure authority where people are bent to his will or uh, attempt to fit what they think he wants. And he's not really referring to either kind of authority. He's just doing his own thing and they're falling into line. Yeah. Um, and, and it's to the degree which, like, it's not just that they're not talking, but that, like, they're kind of scared to even make noise by, like, cutting their food. Um uh, and Flask is especially put upon in this situation as the, the lowest ranked of the mates. Um, he gets the, the least appetizing cut of the beef, uh, and he would never in a million years consider taking anything better, especially not butter. Um, which, you know, Ishmael kind of speculates that if Flask did do that, like if he did, you know, just like reach up and take some better food that like Ahab might not even notice or care. Um, yeah, the chances which, were Ahab had never so much as noticed it. Which I, I think, like, it's it's a it's a um, it's a little bit of a, a, a tall claim to me because it's it's hard to believe that someone as domineering as Ahab wouldn't respond to as kind of um, you know noticeable a breach of etiquette as that. I mean, um, the thing is, I don't think that like flask taking a better cut is actually a breach of etiquette because he's served last he can't take a cut someone else wanted it's literally impossible that's that's true and similarly um like it's butter he's an officer it's not like this is one of the men there's no actual danger to the supply of butter if one person is also using it but Flask feels so terribly the fact that he is, like, the third mate and the closest to not being a mate or whatever. And Ahab is so grim and, like, just intense that Flask is completely uh, 
well, he's a butterless man. Yeah. Um, and he also, uh, in terms of Flask's God, you know, humiliation, yeah. does not end oh. with the butter because he also, uh, you know, he's he's the last to come oh. down to dinner and the first to leave because that's, you know, that's how they order it. And so that means that um, if he notices that Stubb is almost done, he has to hurry and, like, bolt down what he's eating because, like, once Stubb is finished, he's going to be, you know, kind of waiting on Flask to get up and leave so that he can leave uh, because... Ultimately, no one wants to be here, right? Yeah, like... no, I mean, I, I do think that, like, the the atmosphere being painted here is, like, it, it is at least as thick as that beef and just as carvable. <laughs> like, the um, the description of, uh, of Ahab, you know, um, uh, he forbade not conversation, only he himself was dumb. And it just, like... Wow, just imagine all of that, and you're desperately trying to eat quickly if you're flask, but with no sound whatsoever. Quickly and silently. Yes. Um, and uh, so, you know, because of this, because he has the, le- the least time to eat of anybody, um, flask is always hungry. Uh, much more so than when than before he became an officer, when he could just, like... It's kind of implied, like, eat whenever, I guess. Well, okay, I would imagine that, like, the men before the mast have specific meal times, but, like, clearly they do not have to follow this degree of formality. Yeah, I mean, it absolutely. It seems like probably don't even sit down to a table. Yeah, they almost certainly know? are just, like, eating as, as much and when they can, and, you know, they can fit it into their lives, whereas he has such a strict social rhythm to when and where he can eat. Ah. <sighs> Yeah, so, uh, that's, uh, that's Flask's situation. Yeah, it's, um, um the, there's a line here, which is, For what he ate did not so much relieve his hunger as keep it immortal in him. He's, like, getting enough to yeah. survive, but he's always kind of unsatisfied, and he can't do anything about that while remaining a mate, and he can't really, like, proceed to a situation, on this voyage at least, where he can be a, like, higher level officer. It's, oh, flat. I mean, the only, I, I would imagine that if, if Starbuck or Stubb were killed, and Flask wasn't, that he'd probably get promoted. That makes sense. But, uh, I suspect but also if he were willing to just um, breach decorum a little bit, and I don't think anyone would actually care he could probably just go and eat some food out of the stores. But he's not going to. Yeah. Hi, sorry about that. I actually uh, got visited by the U.S. Census. But I'm back now. Yeah. So, uh... Where were we? Yeah, we had just... I was pretty much done, I think, unless you had more to say, talking about Ahab and the mate's dinner, and I wanted to move on to the harpooners. Um, yeah, I I think I should specifically note that um, Ishmael uh, uses Flask as an example of why seeking, like, higher office or, like, career advancement is ultimately pointless. Like, yeah, he specifically yeah. says, there's the fruits of promotion now. There's the vanity of glory. And using the extremely weird edge case of Flask... To more or less justify his, uh, you know, disdain for officer advancement, which are a pretty big part of Ishmael's character. 
That's interesting. I read those lines as being like in, in Flask's uh, point of view, because like right before that, it's been kind of Flask's thoughts, but not in quotation I think marks. That's, I think like, that's true, but um, I think it also fits so well with Ishmael's worldview that I have to mm. read this as... Uh, I mean, it's talking about things... It's not a thing Flask said ever. It's what Flask thought. And that means it's being yeah, presented it's... from Ishmael's sort of suppositions. Yeah, yeah. That that, that does make sense. Um, I think he does say something about, like, the idea Flask that... Flask did um... once admit in private that he's always been hungry yes. since becoming an officer. But he doesn't explicitly... Basically, he's sort of iffy on whether Flask explicitly said, Oh man, this promotion really sucks. Or if yeah. it was, you know, Flask complaining about that and also still liking the fact that he's paid significantly more. <laughs> right. Um, well, has a significantly higher share, technically. Yes. Um, so once the once Ahab and the mates are done eating, um, the steward, like, clears the table and sets it again uh, for the harpooners. Uh, and they have a completely different, like way of eating. Oh, absolutely. Um, they have no regard for formality. Um, because, I mean, you know, uh, so I think people will probably remember this, but um, all three harpooners are, uh, are are I guess people of color. They are um, they're very all... loudly not white in the narrative. Like, they, yes. they specifically are one half of a binary where the mates are white New Englanders and the harpooners are all people of color and from other societies and sort of represent a different kind of, I mean, energy that sort of is united with the mates and that makes them such a great team in Melville and Ishmael's appraisal. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, let's not, you know, let's not beat around the bush. This is a pretty racist scene yes. because it's all about how bad their table manners it are. It um, also literally uses the phrase noble savage. It sure does. So yep. I... I will slightly defend it, not in the sense that it's not racist, but, because uh, boy is it ever, but in the specific sense that I think we are meant to come out of this with the sense that these guys are having a lot more fun and doing a lot better of a job, basically, than the, um, the very repressed New Englanders. And I think it's meant to be kind of a picaresque on manners and... Uh, table and basically the sort of um the assumptions and hierarchies which these individuals who do not in any way respect them or perhaps know about them by completely ignoring them are able to just satisfy their actual desire to eat food yes now i will say as far as like uh does ishmael think that like the way that the mates eat dinner or the way that the harpooners eat dinner is better uh on the one hand i'm sure he does think that like the kind of the harpooners are having a better time. Yeah, no. But... Uh, however, they are also terrorizing the steward. Yes, they are absolutely um, terrorizing the steward. And one of the, I mean, again, just most straightforwardly racist sentences in this book, uh, so far at least, is "Alas, doughboy, hard fares the white waiter who waits upon cannibals." Yeah, I um, I can't make any apology for that. I do think the scene is reasonably funny on the level of like a cartoon, but it's a racist cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, that's pretty much, 
Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't want to pick over this the way he repeatedly describes people picking over bones in it. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's really need to. Like, there are, there are minute distinctions in the exact, like, type of, uh, like, kind of wild behavior that each of them expresses, but I don't think it really matters. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I... We have covered what it is doing in the narrative and the contrast it's presenting, and now let us draw the veil across it. Yeah, um, there's there's only like one thing left in this chapter, which I think is worth noting, uh, which is just that uh, he notes that, like, technically speaking, the mates and the harpooners like live in the cabin, um, like they 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 sleep below, and 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 so the cabin is supposed to be, I guess, like their living room. Um, but, uh, in actuality, they hardly ever go there. It's basically just Ahab's domain. Um, uh, which, which that in, that, that is pretty typical, uh, for a whale captain, um, to, like, keep the cabin to himself. Mm -hmm. He also uses it to develop further on the idea that Ahab is sort of, like, socially alien to the entirety of society, like, his his total even though this is a typical thing for an american whale captain to do it is used to figure ahab's atypical degree of isolation from the larger body of humanity um yeah it it's kind of like the sense that you get is like under normal circumstances a captain keeps the cabin to himself and other people would kind of like to go in there and like maybe it would be a nice place to be and maybe they would like chat with him uh, but in this case, no one wants to go to the place where Ahab is alone because Ahab is like scary. You want to leave him in his own room. Yeah, yeah, and the people who theoretically live there with him in the in the rest of the cabin are just they go there to sleep and to eat, and they avoid it otherwise. Yeah, there's also a truly wild metaphor. Yeah, it it's kind of a double metaphor because he he like. Uh, he, first he says that Ahab is like the last of the grizzly bears. Um, he lived in, in the world as the last of the grizzly bears lived in settled Missouri. So meaning, like, you know, he's in the world, but he's not of it. He's separated and from it. And, like, um, terrifying. And, like, a, a force of nature that exists within an otherwise normal social environment and other people have to just root around. Yes. Um, and then he also compares... Uh, that bear in to um uh the phrase is that wild logan of the woods um and and logan is the name of gosh let me get my citation quickly so that yeah I, I get the, all i could think the right there thing, is, that's a i didn't really like that movie <laughs> Jeez, no but so he's he's uh he's referring to a historical figure uh chief logan um who like uh you know the the thing the specific Thing that, and this is just from my citation. I don't know anything about this history other than this, but uh, supposedly this is a uh, native chief who, you know, uh, was initially. My, my, I'm just going to read my citation. Who was a friend of European settlers until his entire family was killed in a massacre. He hid and led attacks on settlements, sparking what is called Dunmore's War. Which, like, man, even that very dry citation, like, I can't believe you're saying that the guy who lead attacks was sparking the war and not the people who yeah. massacred his family. Wow. God. Wow. Uh, but fucked. anyway, um, 
so the the thing that that Ishmael's getting at here is is that you know uh, uh, Ahab, like the bear, like Chief Logan, is like hiding mm. out and separated from quote unquote civilization, and is also again presented as this like last vestige of a prior order and also like a threat. Yeah. yeah. But it also goes on to say that, like, um, and as when spring and summer had departed, that wild Logan of the woods, burying himself in the hollow of a tree, lived out the winter there, sucking his own paws. So, in his inclement, howling old age, Ahab's soul, shut up in the caved trunk of his body, there fed upon the sullen paws of its gloom. I really enjoy that paragraph, but I have no idea what feeding upon the sullen paws of your gloom or is supposed to be except just a general metaphor for like turning inward and becoming gnarled and dark yeah ishmael just loves to end a chapter with something really evocative and upsetting about ahab you're not wrong like attempting a little bit more of a, a dive into that metaphor, the idea that, like, old age is this winter that surrounds his body and withers it, but inside his soul, starving except for, um... I mean, I, I don't know if sucking on his paws is supposed to actually give nourishment, but and I suppose that's sort of the point. It's not. But he's just sort of festering in his gloom inside his body, which is withered by old age. It, it, it's grim. Yeah. But the next chapter begins with more pleasant weather explicitly. So like, ah, let's let's <laughs> stop paying attention to Ahab being terrifying. Let's uh let's let's think about um sunny days. Yes. Yeah, it really is a sudden switch from like the uh, at least metaphorically, you know, like the dead of winter inside a dead tree to like ah, aren't the breezes of the South Pacific so pleasant? Yep, that in <laughs> um yep, that much more pleasant weather. Yeah. Great. Cool. So the the next chapter um and the next chapter is called The Masthead. Um and this this is all about uh the so the, the the word masthead refers to the duty of getting up at the top of the mast and watching for whales. Um and this chapter is basically all about that and uh you know Ishmael's experience taking that shift. Um this is, I think this, we, 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 we've talked before about what some of your favorite bits of this book mm-hmm. are. Um, I think this might be one of my favorite Aww. chapters. Um, yeah. So, uh, so American whaling ships keep someone at the masthead pretty much the entire time that they're sailing. Um, like, even when they've, you know, just left port and they're thousands of miles away from where they actually expect to find whales. Um, and also, even when they're heading back... And they've, like, filled up all of their barrels, um, as long as there's anything on board that could theoretically hold a tiny amount of spermaceti, they're still going to be hunting for whales. Um, and that's, that's what the, yeah, so they're still going to be having someone up in the masthead. Um, and, uh, Ishmael gives a, a little history of mastheads, which is, you know, as typical for Ishmael, He's basically drawing in the entire history of the world and being like, oh, actually, this is all connected to whaling. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I really enjoy his little history of mastheads, which um, credits the old Egyptians as the first. Because, after all, the, um, the pyramids with their strangely stepped sides were intended for astronomers to go up to the top, which, 
first of all, is an incredibly 19th century opinion because the, um, uh, the Egyptian pyramids were not yet sort of understood to have been clad in smooth marble on the outside, but rather to have mm-hmm. been stepped the entire way through. Uh, so he even has this really wonderful description of the um, uh, astronomers being um, uh, prodigiously long liftings of their legs uh, being necessary to take them up the sides because the blocks are like two meters tall because they're not steps. Yes. Uh, or, and um. he's previous to that, Babel, with the Tower of Babel, would have been the... Um, the prior masthead, but uh, God smote that one, so we're not going to count it. Yes. Yeah, it's it, it very much has that vibe of, like, people trying to discuss what the first ever thing is, and it's like, well, is it the first one that was completed, or the first one that was started? <laughs> Ishmael, neither of these things are mastheads. Yeah, not even a little. Anyway. Um... Uh, it, 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 it is... It, it's interesting, his definition of a masthead doesn't seem to be simply any tall object, but specifically something that someone gets up on top of in order to, like, have a lookout, basically. Yes. Um, because his, his, his defense of the idea of, um, you know, like, like you said, he's saying that, uh, the Egyptian pyramids were for astronomers to get up on top of, and he, he suggests that they were, um, trying to sight new stars in the same way that, uh, someone at the masthead is trying to sight whales. Sing out um, for new stars, not only. So it's not just that they're going to, like, see a new star and write it down. No, it's, they're going to see a new star and then shout to the people down below, I saw a new one! There's a new one! That's another star! It's mine! <laughs> um, uh, so those are, you know, those are, those are the, the most ancient mastheads. Um, he also sees the pillar uh, that uh, Simeon Stylites lived on as a masthead, um, which that's a early Christian hermit who lived on top of a pillar for decades. What's particularly um, um, interesting to me about that is that he doesn't in any way reference the fact that this, like, uh, Simeon Stylites is, was one of what are now called the Stylites, because the there were there were other... Wait, is I it... I thought pro- it was... Wait. I thought it was... Is it Stylites or Stylites or... Both? I think Stylite refers to a mode of operation where you go up on top like it's it was a kind of like you can have an individual stylite but there's a specific Mm, figure who is associated if i remember correctly with stylites the class and given that name but it was simian basically was simian the stylite effectively not simian last name stylites but in typical ishmael uh fashion He's using it as a proper name, or possibly he would have received it as a proper name. But stylites were like a class of ascetic who would, you know, go out into the desert and sit on top of a tall pillar and get food sent up to them in a bucket. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, and then he, he definitely, you know, uh, he, he's kind of, um, like, analogizing this to, like, you know, he... he it's, you know, he says, like, nothing could deter him from his, his duty, and he died at his post, and it's kind of like, well, he wasn't, he wasn't looking out for anything, yeah, I, like... It, do, Ishmael, do you think that the point of being, like, a religious stylite 
is to sing out when a um, when an interesting uh, piece of scripture crosses your path, or like to to alert <laughs> the people below that there there's a messiah to go get. Yeah. Um, and then he also sees uh, uh, statues on top of columns as standing mastheads. Um, so uh, he he brings up. Um, uh, a statue of Napoleon at the Place Vendôme in Paris, um, a the Washington Monument in Baltimore, which is not like the Washington Monument because this one has a statue of Washington at the top, um, and the statue of Lord Nelson in Trafalgar Square, um, all of whom he kind of like uh, uh, ribs them a little bit for the fact that they're never going to give any warnings to anyone below. <laughs> Yeah, he also, and I don't know if this is intentional or even something that Melville would have been aware of, because I, but I think this is right around the correct time. His phrase that um, uh, token is yet given that a hidden hero is there about um, Nelson, uh, about Nelson. For where there is smoke must be fire about him being sort of surrounded by the smoke and hustle and bustle of London. I don't think it's an intentional reference, but there's a famous um, painting by Turner in which, uh, which ultimately depicts, uh, ultimately because it went through a number of stages and different drafts, where it depicts an engine, um, uh, or rather a furnace, where a statue of Nelson is being forged. Um, in the, ah. And it's in the midst of flame, and the statue is this like glowing angelic figure in the midst of smoke and fire. So I have no idea if Melville would have had any knowledge of that. I just thought it was cool. Yeah, certainly I can see why you would think of that image here. I, I think... Um, my my book cites London smoke as meaning like smog. Yes. So I think like what he is referring to is the fact that like at yeah, this London time, was having the you know, smog. Yeah, like the visibility would be so low that maybe you yeah. couldn't actually see a statue on top of a. Yeah, it's it's specifically um, the the idea of where there is smoke must be fire, and the fact that he's specifically a gunmetal. Um, it was a gunmetal statue. I believe they literally melted down um, out of use uh, armaments for it. And mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. generally, this sort of very, oh, I, I think it's aesthetically interesting, uh, you know, linkage between the guns and the the literal, you know, naval battles that Nelson uh, came out of to his new post on top of a big stick in the middle of smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Ishmael does at least admit that. Maybe it's a little fishy of him to claim that all of these, like, land pillars <laughs> are are actually masked. Sorry, just the phrase um, land pillar was very funny to me, and I don't know why. <laughs> I mean, it's... I guess there's not... Well, okay, never mind. I was about to say there's not really sea pillars, but no, there totally are. Like, like at, in, you know, like in a bay or yeah. whatever. Like, erect... Like, buildings that come out they of the jut. ocean. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, so he, he justifies this connection by citing... Uh, Obed Macy, uh, a, a historian of Nantucket, um, who says that early whaling off Nantucket used lookouts on like structures on the shore, um, which apparently was uh, still being done by contemporaneous New Zealand whalers. Um, uh, but anyway, after talking about all these things that aren't actually masked, not even a little. Um, <laughs> We come to the thing he's actually talking about, the one, the, the masthead on a whaling ship, uh, which is uh, people, you know, people take two-hour shifts, sailors take two-hour shifts there, 
um, the as long as there's light in the sky. Uh, and Ishmael thinks it's a very pleasant task overall, uh, especially to quote a dreamy meditative man, whoever that person yeah, might I like theoretically who happen could that to possibly be? be. Surely not Ishmael, a practical and reasonable person. <laughs> um, and you know it's it's nice because like the weather is pleasant and the entire ship and the ocean is just like laid out beneath you nothing is happening and you can you can just vibe up there basically i want to yes first of all yes but secondly i want to specifically call out his his sentence that um there you stand a hundred feet above the silent deck striding along the deep as if the masts were gigantic stilts while beneath you and between your legs as it were swim the hugest monsters of the sea even as ships once sailed between the boots of the famous colossus at old roads and i I find that very compelling because I'm I am quite given to that sort of perspective shift where you suddenly feel like huge and like you're striding across something. I actually have a habit of with particular buildings where if I keep my eyes on them as I'm walking past, I feel like I'm making them rotate because of the way parallax works. I am very I really enjoy that sort of sense of um, I guess immensity or like just of perspective shifting. It's very fun for me. And uh, Ishmael clearly experiences that up on the masthead. And um, yeah, I can definitely understand that appeal. Yeah, definitely. Um, Although I should say, I also am kind of afraid of heights. So like when I've actually um, been in that kind of situation, most of my attention is focused on, I am clinging to this object. I am clinging to this object. And like, not necessarily not enjoying it also but i don't often have that sort of the placid dreaminess of it not present for me yeah especially because i imagine you would especially not feel that way if you were on uh the pequod's mast because uh ishmael does note that on a uh you know on a southern whale ship like this one um you just have like kind of a little horizontal you know bar to stand on that sticks out of the mast and you're just kind of like physically perched up there. Technically you have two Uh, of them. One for each foot. (laughs) Yes. Um, And uh, so it's kind of uncomfortable in that regard. Um, And you know, if you're in cold weather you have nothing to protect you but your coat. Um, By contrast, uh, vessels that whale around Greenland uh, they have crow's nests, um, which is, you know, uh, it, it makes sense why you would have something like that when you're going to be whaling in, like, the Arctic Circle, um, and you wouldn't necessarily bother building that when, like, you're going to be uh, in in tropical waters. Um, uh, but he, he then kind of uh, goes into talking about, like, the what exactly a crow's nest is. Um, he's... Uh, He's, he's, he's basing himself on, um, he says he's basing himself on, uh, a book by Captain Sleet. Um, supposedly this is, like, he's, he's kind of jokingly alluding to, uh, Scoresby, who he's talked about before as someone who, like, is one of the most notable, like, chroniclers of whaling voyages before him. Um, but I, I think perhaps because he's making fun of him here, he's uh, he's being pseudonymous ah, about so it. So this isn't like um, a 
this isn't an actual book on whaling. This is an invented one. Well, uh, I don't know about... So, like, Scoresby wrote actual books on whaling in which he actually wrote about, like, the invention of the crow's nest. Sure. But um, I mean, specifically but... Sleet's A Voyage Among the Icebergs in Quest of the Greenland Whale, and incidentally for the rediscovery of the lost Icelandic colonies of old Greenland, that's not real. Yeah, I think, I, I believe that is not the title of Scoresby's gotcha. book. Um, so, uh, uh, Sleet, uh, according to Ishmael, Sleet, uh, claims that he invented it, um, my citation says Scoresby actually says his father invented it. Whatever. That's a nitpick citation. Um, <laughs> oh, we anyway, definitely uh, don't nitpick here. Neither us nor Ishmael. Anyway, so, so um, you know, uh, the, the crow's nest... Oh my god, there's a reference uh, to that in the book, though. Um, specifically, um, he names it after himself, being the original inventor and patentee and free from all ridiculous false delicacy, and holding that if we call our own children after our own names, parenthesis, we fathers being the original inventors and patentees. Uh, yes. God, that's yeah. so smug. Yeah, I, I get the sense that, like, he's kind of trying to say that it's, um, you know, that it's, it's like, self-aggrandizing to name something after yourself, but he's... Uh, joking and being like, oh, yeah, no, totally reasonable. People name their kids after themselves. Why not name your invention after yourself? Yeah, I mean, I just Um, also, if Scoresby's actually claiming his father invented it, and that reference to, like, we fathers uh, being, you know, uh, being the original inventors and patentees, it's just such a, it's a self-satisfied clever move, and I'm hugely enjoying it. Yeah. Um... So the, uh, the, the crow's nest is a really nice amenity to have, not just because, so like the physical shape of it is, is basically like a, like a barrel, right? Um, it's, it doesn't have a top, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a bottom and, and round sides made of wood. Um, and obviously, you know, that'll protect you to some extent from the elements. And it also allows you to like sit down in a seat. And there's um, less chance you can that also... it'll just suddenly roll out. Exactly. Yes. Um. Uh, and you can also keep all kinds of handy stuff up there. Um, so, such as, like, you know, umbrellas and coats and uh, a speaking trumpet and a pipe. Um, and, uh, uh, Ishmael says, uh, you know, uh, Captain Sleet has all this, all of these details to tell us about the rifle he kept up there so he could shoot at narwhals and the compass, um, and goes into... Ishmael says he goes into all kinds of detail on, like, the scientific measurements he was making with his compass and how he was accounting for the ways that, like, uh, this, this gets into, like, details of how compasses work and how, like, the reading your compass would get on the deck of the ship wouldn't necessarily be as accurate as the one you'd get up at the top of the mast because of the interference from the iron on the ship. Um, all of that. Uh, but Ishmael says he fails to mention that he definitely had a little bottle of liquor up there, um, which which is uh, uh, that's that's the uh, the sense that I get is definitely Ishmael being like, why would you not? Like, yeah, and, and you would have to be a fool not yeah, to. You'd have to be a fool not to, and also, how could you abandon your liquor bottle in explaining this? You know this. Uh, the situation you've set up. How could you leave out your true friend, your flask? <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but, uh, 
even though Ishmael is, is clearly in many ways deeply jealous of the opportunity <laughs> to have a crow's nest and, and all the many amenities that it affords, um, he does ultimately uh, conclude that it's, it's, it's better to be on a, a southern whaling vessel because uh, it's just so much more pleasant uh, to be up there in, you know... Warm, nice weather? Yeah, like, um, this is, this is really the, um, uh, yeah, the, the, this, the, 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 like, sense that Ishmael is describing of, like, timelessness and, like, carelessness that is associated with, like, the weather and the, the, the unmoving ocean and the solitude of it, um, that's the, that's the stuff that I really like in this chapter, that, Mm -hmm. that. I don't know. That's just a very like evocative. I I it makes me want to be up on a masthead, even though like I cannot imagine it's actually pleasant. Yeah, that's that's very fair. It's it's a really lovingly painted experience. Yeah, um, and, and he he does admit after kind of saying you know talking up how like pleasant and and like meditative the experience of standing the masthead is. Uh, Ishmael does admit that he was terrible at his job um, because uh, he, you know, uh, he was busy thinking about all of the, like, heavy shit that caused him to want to go to sea in the first place. Um, And, you know, it's kind of like you're isolated from everyone else and you're in, like, this pleasant weather you're going to be slowly swaying from side to side because even if the ship isn't rolling that much the mast will exaggerate it yes exactly so like how are you not going to be like pondering your philosophy um and uh this this uh he describes it as with the problem of the universe revolving in me yes and like that that is uh I too am always pondering the problem of the universe revolving in you <laughs> even when maybe I sh- sure um, even when technically speaking I should be paying attention to shit um, yeah and uh, he he then kind of like goes on from this like admission uh, to say like all right sea captains do not hire people like me yeah he, um, specifically like, if you happen uh, Beware of enlisting in your vigilant fisheries any lad with lean brow and hollow eye given to unseasonable meditativeness. Yeah, he's basically saying, like, if you hire, like, some kind of depressed weirdo, they're going to spend all their time... educated depressed weirdo? Yes, uh, they're going to spend all their time just, like, mooning over Plato, and they're not going to give you any whales. Specifically, Um, and. um... He keeps using young Platonist to describe them, which, by the way, I'm going to, I'm going to produce uh, music under that name now. Young Platonist? Okay, that one didn't land. What? Sorry. You need to explain your joke. You can't just make a joke that I say what to and then not explain it. Is it, wasn't young something like a, a... Oh my god. Are you really trying to say it's a rap name? I was trying to say it was a bad one. God, that's just that's a chap hop name. I'm what? disgusted. <laughs> like you know, like 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 
like cheesy white nerds being like, oh my god, isn't it so funny yeah, that I'm doing no. rap, but I'm like a, a nerdy That's white man? That's fair. It's, it's not a, I didn't <laughs> say it was a good joke. I saw it, I missed. Clearly it's not very good. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to like take you to task. I just, I didn't understand what you were saying at all. Um, they can't all be winners. Okay. Maybe 50% of them can be winners. Um, so, uh, uh, it's also, in addition to, like, the fact that, you know, all of these, this, like, type of guy is, is gonna be totally worthless for spotting whales, there's also a real danger that you're gonna hire one of these, like, 19th century doomers by accident, because there are a lot of them. Like, there's just a lot of people who've been, you know, reading sentimental, depressing novels, and who, just like Ishmael, have decided that going to sea is the way to deal with their feelings. Um, he, he specifically says, um, uh, nowadays the whale fishery furnishes an asylum for many romantic, melancholy, absent-minded young men disgusted with the carking cares of Earth and seeking sentiment in tar and blubber. And, like, I just imagine that in an incredibly cranky voice. Just like, in my I day, mean, whalers cared about killing whales! Not like me. I didn't. <laughs> right, that's the thing. Like, Ishmael has... Ishmael cannot possibly be cranky about this because he is talking about himself. Are you saying Ishmael can't be um, a hypocrite? Because I have news for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good point. Um, he, uh... He's still talking in the third person about, you know, ostensibly one of this type, but, um... But, with the specificity of it, it's very obvious that Ishmael is talking about his own experience he he starts to talk about the feeling of you know from the masthead uh gazing out at the ocean and identifying it with like a single universal soul um and thinking of the things that he sees swimming in it as as transient thoughts and uh feeling at one with the universe um and and i think Maybe this is a moment of, like, um, he, 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 he makes an allusion to uh, a specific relig religious figure, um, like Wycliffe's sprinkled pantheistic Cranmers. ashes forming at last. Cranmers? Wycliffe's? Ah, we have different we versions. Um, the, this is also in my citation. Uh, uh, the first American edition of Moby Dick named Thomas Cranmer rather than Wycliffe. Huh. Or Wycliffe? I don't know how that name would be pronounced. Anyway, uh, the point being... Wycliffe, I think, but please go on. Anyway, uh, like someone's, sprinkled pantheistic ashes, forming at last a part of every shore the round globe over. So what he's referring to with this, at least, okay, I don't know what the deal would be with Cranmer, but presumably something similar happened to him. Uh, but what the note says about Wycliffe is... Uh, English religious reformer John Wycliffe, mid-1320s to 1384, a critic of the Catholic Church. After he died of stroke, the Pope had his body exhumed and burned and the ashes thrown into a river. Wow. Um, which, like, in in Ishmael's version, uh, Wycliffe's sprinkled pantheistic ashes is like like a feeling of like spiritual communion with the entire yeah, universe. That, um, that background is fantastic. That's very but Ishmael. But yeah, like, for the actual... For the actual person, it was, you know, something that was done to, like, insult yeah. him. Um, Cranmer, I would assume, I'm just looking this up, also a, uh, a, a leader of the English Reformation. 
he has to have also been cremated, I guess, or it wouldn't make any sense to substitute his name yeah. here. Um, unless, like, it doesn't seem completely impossible to me that somebody would be like... Because I, I assume the substitution of names... It has to be some kind of censorship thing, right? I, I like, don't know. I really don't know. Um, I don't. I don't know. Uh, I can talk about pantheism, but I I don't know the specific religious history here. Okay, so so this uh, Cranmer was um, was burned to death. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> well, that makes it even better. Yes. Um. Anyway, so. This is like a very weird little moment where he's kind of, he's comparing this, you know, ostensible melancholic youth, wonder who that might be, um, to like religious reformers who were, you know, killed for that, but also kind of suggesting that like in that death they were united with, you know, a pantheistic global soul. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it specifically uh, is, um... I mean, well, we've talked about how uh, Ishmael's kind of morbid, right? Like, he's he's concerned mm-hmm. with death. So I think the idea that this is, like, both incredibly, like, pleasant and religious and rapturous, but also a kind of, of death or ego death makes a lot of sense. The idea that he'd be comparing this sort of dissolution of the self to a, a literal physical death, which is contrasted with the last paragraph here. Right, so... That's the thing, is that if, if you are, like, experiencing, you know, sort of psychic oneness at the top of a mast, you are in very real danger of, like, falling off and being suddenly thrust right back into individual experience as you thrust die. back into individual experience um, for a very, very brief time. Uh, yes. I think he specifically um, describes it as, over Descartesian vortices you hover. And perhaps yes, at, that's, sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that that's a that's a specific reference to um, Descartes theorized that the universe was made out of like vortices. Yes. Um, so, but he also yeah. specifically that's... was very concerned with the division of um, you know mind and body and the sort of specific like Cartesian ego set apart from the universe. Yes, um, so it's like the. The literal meaning of these vortices is like the 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 whirls of air that you're hovering over, but um, there's also definitely a sense of like, watch out, buddy, you are an individual soul and a body, and those are about to be separated. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and perhaps at midday, in the fairest weather, with one half throttled shriek, you drop through that transparent air into the summer sea, no more to rise forever. Heed it well, ye pantheists. God, is that... Do you think that's meant to be, like, checkmate pantheists? Like, is he saying... Is he saying... You might think that there's a single universal global soul that is also God. But when you die, you're gonna find that you are an individual. Oh, sorry, I, 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 I need a second. <laughs> sorry, that was really good. Um... I, I don't think it's quite that, but I do think that, like, the, the individual and their religious experience is pretty important to Ahab, uh, to Ishmael. Second time this episode. Um, I get maybe the sense that, like, what he's kind of suggesting is 
in this position at the masthead, it's natural to feel a sense of like cosmic unity. You know, of, of like, yeah, of cosmic unity. But that's deceptive. Hmm. Um, See, and like, if you give in to that, you will I die. I think it's complex. And I think that the use of Platonist earlier is important. Uh, in part because of what's going to be happening next time. Um, but the short version is, this, I think, is setting up, setting you into a very placid and philosophical frame of mind, and then at the very last moment, because it is written in a way that really encourages that kind of dreamy placidity. It's all, it's all theorizing, it's all beautiful imagery, um, and then suddenly it's like, and by the way, you can fall and die Basically, you can just stop existing like like that. And I mm -hmm. think that that's, first of all, very effective. And secondly, sets up a dynamic of um, contrast between this sort of platonic philosophical existence where sort of, um, you know, the ocean itself is this body of symbols. It is your soul. Your, your thoughts are the things moving within it. Looking, the whale is just a symbol. Literally, the, the whales are just part of this great cosmic soul. And then suddenly, physical reality reasserts itself, and I yeah. think, and, sorry, and I on. think, go on, go on. I think that's important because we are about to get to know a little bit about how Ahab sees a specific whale, and how it functions as sign and symbol for something for grim old Ahab. We are about yeah. to hear one of my very favorite parts of this book, possibly my favorite, and. It involves a very platonic model of the universe in some ways. So I think the fact that we've been talking Platonism, that we've had this, this beautiful, soft, friendly version of the symbol and the world, and the way the whole world is sort of submerged within that symbolic reality, and then it's, at the very end, cut short and questioned by this, this danger of death, I think that all sets us up very well for the speeches to come. Yeah. Um, there's even, uh, as far as, like, talking about, you know, talking about Plato, talking about the idea of, like, you know, the physical world just being uh, the, the shadows on the cave wall compared to, like, higher reality and, and, and symbols, which are, like, you know, more more real to Plato. Um, he is, he, there's not what I would call, like, direct engagement with that philosophy in this chapter. But there is this idea that, like, when he's talking about, you know, how you don't want to hire this the Platonists to to man your mm -hmm. masthead, um, uh, those young Platonists have a notion that their vision is imperfect. They are short-sighted. Meaning, like, he's kind of joking that, like, oh, they don't think physical reality is real, so how are they going to spot a yeah. whale? Like, when they can't see... It is impossible to see the know, forms, the, the form of the whale. So, like anybody who thinks about it that way, is not going to see the physical whale that you need to get. Yeah, the no, money. I think you're right, and I think that's going to be very interesting in the context of Ahab's speech. Um, I think also it's worth noting that in the previous chapters we've had uh, the form and appearance and structure of social things hiding underlying realities and causing people to behave oddly. We've had a reference to the elect and the Gnostically religious. We've had Platonism and pantheism. We've had... Uh, Descartian forces? We have. We had, we've um. had um, the appearance of science and technical knowledge. Obviously, we're coming out of cytology, which is all about 
science and knowledge and whether it is possible to know the whale. And uh, you mentioned the idea that we're sort of easing our way back into narrative by describing these sort of habitual situations. And at the very end of, um, of this chapter, we do have a moment of just straightforward, not literal narrative, it's, it's, you know, it's a what if, it's a this could happen to you. Certainly it didn't happen to Ishmael. But that, uh, that threat of death suddenly does pull us back towards actual events. And we sort of just, uh, having been, you know, entirely abstracted in cytology, we're now driving our way back into the narrative uh, via all of this Gnostic and religious and philosophical framework back into events and ultimately to, uh, to Ahab. Yeah, so... Uh... Yeah, I think you. I feel like I should like give just like some very very brief sense of uh, that the next chapter, uh, the quarter deck, um, goes back to like actual. Like, I mean, plot it starts with and like characters having it conversations. It starts with stage directions. It's doing as much as it can to get us back into narrative. Yes, um, and uh, there's also. Uh, well, we've already made it very clear. There's some some powerful Ahab shit in the next chapter. Oh yes, so, there is. Um, and some of the like crucial thematic concerns of the rest of the book get laid out in the quarter deck. You know, we we got to chapter thirty six, and finally, we're 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 gonna hear about the main plot. I mean, okay, that's a bit unfair. Is it? <laughs> we heard about the white whale once so far in the book. And okay. it was at the end of the chapter okay, that's fair. Uh, when Ahab says, by the way, I'm looking for a white whale musical sting. <laughs> it is true that, like, yeah, like, we have not been, we don't yet know, we don't yet know that Moby Dick is that's, the white whale, I, right? I think that's true. I think we have not yet, like, we know it is called Moby Dick or the whale, but we haven't explicitly connected the white whale to Moby Dick yet. I don't think the name Moby Dick has shown up in the story at all at, until this point. We are like a third yeah. of the way through the book. I was um, I was telling you the other day how I like appreciate and respect a narrative that is not afraid to waste some time, not afraid to like. <laughs> spend like to to spend time on 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 building mood or character yeah, yeah without like feeling the need to advance the plot and like god this book is just incredible yes that. that's this what book it's will for. not only build towards the plot very slowly and set all the pieces in motion but it will have entire subplots occur before and after the main plot is in motion that have very little to do with the plot except thematically and allegorically uh and which will be returned to and moved around in various ways. This this book is um, it is willing to take a very long trip to get to its uh its central plot events, and I'm really here yeah. for it. Yeah, it's 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 good shit. <sighs> All right, we have been recording for almost two hours. Yep. I think we should probably call it a day. Yeah, I I think we've I think we've very nicely come to a setup for next time. Uh, I don't. I don't think we yeah. know yet exactly how many chapters because we'll have to. We'll have to look and see how much there is in the quarter deck. But it's a. It's oh a, yeah, damn! Well, I it's, forgot it's, to... a, it's also. I think it's a. It's a reasonable concern also because the next few sections after the quarter deck are um, 
each like a time of day and they're set out almost like a play with stage directions. We're getting into an interesting and um, uh, experimental section of the book. Before we arrive at chapter 41, Moby Dick. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I think that's enough teasing next time. Uh, yep. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the uh, internet? Well, I am on Twitter as at Silk and Stone. Yeah. And uh, I'm also on Twitter at Char Asnablunt. Um, and oh, gosh, I should mention, um, I have another podcast Yay. now. Um, yeah, th- this episode will, of course, come out like significantly after that podcast has started to release because yeah. whatever. But um, yeah, I have a I have another show uh, called uh, Ars Arcanum, uh, which is a show about uh, reading um, the works of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere, which is like a um, like a sort of huge uh, like over series composed of a whole bunch of sub series of fantasy novels, um, and. Uh, yeah, they're 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 great books. Uh, I recommend reading them. I recommend listening to the podcast. Um, I'm I'm doing it with my friends Nora and Autumn on their uh, Export Audio Podcast Network. Um, I think probably the best way to find uh, Ars Arcanum is is to go to uh, exportaud.io, which is the Export Audio website. That might just take you to their Patreon. You should subscribe to their Patreon anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So uh, that's uh, th- that's it for now. See you next time. Same whale time, same whale channel. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's going to get weird. Oh, there we go.